Greetings, brothers and sisters, and welcome back to the Religion and Horror series. And today we're going to be discussing The Mist, which was written and directed by Frank Darabont and was adapted from a novella by Stephen King. And I'm joined again by a good friend of the show, Andy. Welcome, Andy. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for letting me get all this horrible, horrible religious nonsense off my chest from The Mist. There's a lot of it. (laughs) There is a lot of it. And this is the third time that you have been on my show solo. Um, And Bob and Juice have only been on the show once solo. So you're like, you're lapping the rest of the crew. I mean, sucks to suck, I guess. I don't know. That's what what we used to say. So I'll go with that. They got to get their ass into gear. It's true. So I'm, I'm glad to have you on once again. Um, and before we get into film discussion, if you don't mind sharing, what is your religious background? Yeah, so um, I was raised in a Southern Baptist megachurch for many years um, in Jacksonville, Florida, one that has to this day quite a stranglehold on the local politics of the area, um, certainly of the downtown area. And um, we went there every Sunday. We were very, My parents were very active in church. They met at church um, in the singles group. And so I was in Sunday school. I was doing Wednesday night services, the whole thing. Um, that sort of eventually dried up a little bit. And a lot of that had to do with eventually I was, I was, I had cancer as a kid. So eventually it became like, just one too many things for the week when so much going on with so many variables at play. And then it just never really got put all the way back into high gear. So I eventually found my own church, which was my friend's church, um, another Baptist, but not a mega church. And I did that for a little bit, but it was really more of a social scene and more than anything. And it was very, very dabbly from, from my perspective. I was in high school at this time and then eventually it just sort of became a private religious practice more than anything. Yeah, I think we all have, well, not all, but a lot of us have those experiences where we ended up in youth group, maybe because of faith, but definitely because of social things. You know, we have a lot of like uh, youth group trip memories and and all of those things. So that's that's a pretty that's a pretty common one for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I would say that there's. No shortage of people that I saw on a regular basis, primarily because billiard tables were involved. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah, and I I went to like a ministry. I went to a country church 
and mm-hmm. sort of like in a small town, like middle of nowhere. So there was like nothing else to do. You know, if you wanted to hang out with your friends, that was kind of the deal, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a provided rec center is essentially what it w- winds up being once you get to be uh, a certain age. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, some good, some bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely. So why without without going too deep without getting into spoiler territory why did you want to talk about the mist um i really like this movie i know that this is a movie that polarizes people to some degree um but i think that the thing that most people generally like about it is one of my favorite things about it which is the religious uh zealotry that is put on display in this movie and how like it's just like the it's just the perfect encapsulation of like the fall of uh, the fall of like rationality <laughs> in the face of extreme danger. It's just an extremely good example of that. And it's done in sort of like a taken serious, like a B movie taken seriously kind of way. I just like aesthetically, I love this movie. There's a lot of like what you can't see is scary sort of thing. There's a lot of great effects, all those sort of things, but like the religious aspect of it, that that whole thing is just, I think so central to everything that happens in this movie. And when I think of religious horror, like Mrs. Mrs. Cormody is like number one on my list of people I think about. It's a very critical view of, uh, religious institutions. Yeah. I, um, when I was first thinking about doing this series, the mist did not immediately come to mind oddly enough. Um, because Mm. I, I love the mist. I read the novella, in the uh, there was a short story collection called Dark Forces, and that's where the novella was originally published. And I just happened to find that book at like my little local used bookstore, um, <laughs> and fell in love with that story. And uh, probably five years before this movie came out, and so when I heard they were making a movie, and then I heard Frank Darabont was at the helm, I was just stoked for this movie. So I was there like opening weekend, ready to go. And this movie did not disappoint. So it's a movie I love. It's a movie I've watched a lot of times. But oddly enough, like, I just didn't think of it as like an obvious choice for religion and horror, which it it is. It definitely is. So, folks, if you have not seen The Mist, this is your spoiler warning. um, And I would implore you to please go watch it because there is one giant spoiler that you need to be prepared for. At least one. (laughs) At least one. Yeah. Now, listen, everybody. We are experiencing some kind of disaster. No, it's the end of days. Oh my God. Something in the mist! Shut the doors! Shut the doors! I don't know whether it's man-made or natural, but I do know that it's definitely not supernatural. What sound? I don't know. Like something was like pressing against the door. But the only way we're gonna help ourselves is to seek rescue. We're going out. You tie this around your waist. Or four. It'll let us know you got at least three hundred feet. There's nothing out there. Nothing in the mist. Nothing wrong. Then I guess the chuck would be on me.
time to take sides. The saved and the damned. Read the good book. It calls for blood. Enough. You think something got in? Guys, I hear something. The truth. We are being punished. You try it. We have to get out of here. Who knows how far this mist has spread? It could be the whole world for all we know. It wouldn't make us any less dead. Daddy, don't go. If something happens, cut and run. You can't go out. I won't allow it. Won't allow it. That's what brought down the wrath of God. A severe thunderstorm strikes Bridgeton, Maine, causing a tree to fall into the lakeside home of artist David Drayton, his wife Stephanie, and their eight-year-old son Billy. While surveying the damage the next morning, they notice a thick mist advancing over the lake. David and Billy leave for the town with their neighbor Brent Norton to buy supplies. From inside the supermarket, they watch police cars speed down the street. A terrified local, Dan Miller, runs into the store and warns of a danger lurking in the mist. As a siren sounds, store managers Ollie Weeks and Bud Brown close off the supermarket and the mist envelops the store. One woman leaves to go home to her children. Against David's advice, Bagger Norm starts to go outside to fix the store's emergency generator, but he is grabbed by a tentacled creature and dragged into the mist. David and Ollie direct the customers to barricade the storefront windows. Miss Carmody, a religious fanatic, begins preaching about an impending Armageddon. Brent disbelieves the dangers of the mist and leaves the store with a small group to seek outside help. His group is attacked by an unseen force and presumably killed. David forms connections with several people in the store, including Amanda Dunfrey and Irene Repler, two teachers who came into conflict with Miss Carmody over her religious take on the ongoing disaster. Amanda carries a revolver in her purse and gives it to Ollie, who is a former regional shooting champion. As night falls, enormous flying insects, attracted to the lights, swarm to the store windows and are preyed on by petrodactyl-like creatures. One of the predators, including Big Locust, smashes a window, allowing both species inside. In the ensuing panic, two people are killed, while another receives fatal burns while attempting to incinerate the insects. Meanwhile, Carmody is miraculously spared from an insect, which, con which convinces her to proselytize more fervently and gain, follow gain followers among the survivors. A small group, led by David, goes to the neighboring pharmacy in search of medical supplies, but is attacked by giant spiders that kill two men, forcing them to retreat. Miss Carmody who had opposed the expedition, uses this failure to increase her influence by offering protection from divine wrath to new converts. The next day, following the suicides of two soldiers from the local military base, a third soldier, Jessup, reveals that the Arrowhead Project, a government initiative to discover other dimensions, was underway at the base and that scientists accidentally opened a doorway into the creature's habitat. Angered and vengeful, Miss Carmody's followers offer Jessup as a sacrifice and expel him from the supermarket. 
Outside, he is immediately devoured by a giant praying mantis-like creature. As David and his group prepare to leave the store the next morning, they are stopped by Mrs. Carmody. Billy has been chosen by her group to be delivered as the next sacrifice to appease an angry god. As the crowd descends on Amanda and Billy, Ollie shoots and kills Mrs. Carmody. The traumatized survivors then allow the group to leave. As the group makes its way through the parking lot, Ollie is devoured by the praying mantis-like creature, while two others, Myron and Ambrose, are killed by the spider creatures from the pharmacy. Bud runs back to the store and is let inside by the patrons. David, Billy, Dan, Amanda, and Irene reach David's car and leave. Driving through the mist, David finds his home destroyed and Stephanie dead. Devastated, he drives away from town, passing a colossal six-legged beast and eventually running out of gas. With no means of escaping the mist, the adults decide to end their lives. Aiding their suicide, David shoots Billy and the other three survivors with his four remaining bullets before leaving the car to be taken by the creatures. The mist suddenly dissipates, revealing an army convoy beginning the process of exterminating the creatures and restoring order. David, seeing that the army has also rescued survivors, including the woman who left to go to her children, realizes that he killed his son and fellow survivors as they were just moments away from rescue. He then drops to his knees, screaming in despair. Roll credits. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) One of the most famous bleak endings in recent horror cinema, I would say. Yes. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, because I definitely (laughs) want to get into thoughts about the ending But first, let's just get right to the heart of the matter. What religion and or religious themes are present in this film? I mean, I think we both know the answer to that question. (laughs) Um, This uh, clearly has like a lot to say about Christianity in particular, Um, Christian zealots and zealotry and fire and brimstone preaching, preaching and proselytizing. Um, I think that a lot of that just has to do with what, you know, Stephen King wrote this. He wrote what he knows as always it's in Maine. It's in the Northeast. So like, you know, he has his tropes and like criticizing Christianity is not an unusual trope for him. I don't think Um, I'm not the biggest aficionado, but, um, but I think it's like, it could have been another religion, but this is the one that makes sense for, for the context of this movie. I think that there is a lot to be said about Christianity in this film, but really it's pushed through the lens of moral panic and really just panic in general, like, uh, you know, chips are down situations. What do you turn to? How do you make sense of the senseless? And so what's going on here is a bunch of people slowly, but surely losing their grip on thinking rationally and instead listening to the loudest and most abrasively worded voice in the room per- people that even mere hours beforehand they were mocking and deriding as being a quack or being unstable throughout the course of this movie the majority of people in this in this uh grocery come around to her way of thinking in just out of sheer desperation for anything to help it make sense clearly she's all about she thinks this is the apocalypse and she thinks that pretty much from the get-go like right at the beginning, she says it's death. 
from the very beginning, she she has a frame of reference for what she thinks this mist is and what she thinks its purpose is. And um, I was too just engrossed, enjoying watching, rewatching the movie. About halfway through, I was like, you know, I should be writing down all these scriptures she's referencing. I, I, I thought the same thing. I was yeah. like, oops. <laughs> yeah, to see like, is it real? Because sometimes, you know, in in a in a film, they'll like kind of play fast and loose, and especially with a movie like this where there's a theme. I was like, is this? Are these all tied together? Are these actual scripture references? Um, and I did find a few. I did not go back and watch it and write down every single one, but. I went back and looked up the one about star wormwood. Like there's a point where she says star wormwood is blazing. And she also mentioned something about how the the scorpions will come out of the mist and be given power. Um, And all of that stuff is, is straight out of revelation. And I actually, I have a passage out of revelation that I want to read. Cause when I was looking up these scriptures, I found a whole section that sounds pretty familiar. And it's a lot about uh, the seven seals and the seven bowls. And so this is the part of Revelation where like the angels of judgment are coming in and like unleashing different phases of the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Um, So here we go. This is uh, Revelation 8 and 9. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And I think Miss Carmody has read that passage a couple times. Yeah. I mean, some of that stuff, like, yeah, you said, I'm pretty sure verbatim in there, right? Like, you're pulling that directly from her, right? Yes. Okay. And I find that interesting because um, I don't know where Stephen King got the idea for this story, but I'm like that little passage, like there's a lot of things that ha- happen. If you wanted to say this is this is a, like a practical interpretation of what it would look like if this crazy thing actually took place. Um, mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know how familiar Stephen King is with Revelation, but you could make an argument that that was like oh, yeah. an inspiration. I, I like just hearing that back. It sounds a lot like that. That was what was the Prometheus of this idea. Yeah. Um. Like obviously it's it's his own flair on it, uh, but his own interpretation, his modernization of it, and it's and one thing different. I thought was really interesting is there's an earthquake at one point in the movie, mm-hmm. and I've always wondered like what what is that like what is the earthquake that's <laughs> happening and we never learn about it so when I read this passage and there was an earthquake and then everything like hits the fan I was like oh huh yeah well. <laughs> 
in fairness, having played numerous uh, video games where hell rises to earth by way of foolish scientists meddling in things they don't understand, I would say that the initial earthquake as parallel dimensions converge is a pretty standard trope. Um, maybe maybe because of this passage, who knows? I mean, it's, it's biblical and Lord knows it's a source of so many things. But, you know, I, I took it as that. I took it as, you know... <laughs> you know, Black Mesa Research Institute accidentally ripped open a hole to other dimensions and these creatures are now able to walk through and the mist is, you know, part and parcel to that. You know what I mean? It's because like, I think that is after the mist, right? Like, because you have the, the, the lightning storm, they're in the store, then the mist hits, Dale from Walking Dead runs in and then you get the, fu- the the earthquake right like that's the next yeah. step right so yeah. it's a little bit out of sequence but i still think it's like just a result of of the scientific meddling but the it's clear that it's meant to be interpretable that way the whole in fact like this whole movie is like one thing by the time i get to the end of this movie and i don't, I don't want to jump ahead too much but like i had this sinking feeling that i've never really thought too deeply about in the past when watching this movie which is that Carmody's pretty right about everything um and as far as we know, without having seen, you know, anything that's outside of the purview of David and his click, um, everything we experience is through hit channeled through him. So we don't get to see what happens to the people at the store. Maybe they all made it. Like <laughs> We don't actually know. And that was a bummer to think about. <laughs> I had the exact same thought. And like yeah. I said, I've watched this movie a bunch and I have never entertained that reading but i guess just because i was looking at miss carmody a little closer this time i w- i've always thought well of course everything she's right about is just a coincidence and people are just mm-hmm. seeing what they want to see she doesn't actually have these insights and then when i watched it this time i was like oh my god like there is a reading of this movie and it makes me very uncomfortable and i don't know that i fully subscribe to it but there is a reading of this movie where she was right and the reason the mist dissipated is because david killed his son billy see that i never really considered as like the 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 (laughs) ritual sacrifice angle until you would i saw it on on your 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 notes here like Mm -hmm. That's the first time I thought about that. Really, to me, it was just like, man, like, I know she's right a lot of the time and the coincidence is part of what makes her so believable. And that's what makes all these people convert to some extent. It's not just desperation. It's also that she keeps being right. The situation keeps bending to her predictions. She's lucky as hell is what it felt like. And that seems to be what the movie is painted, portraying everything as. But the movie ends in such a way that really makes it seem like there's a very compelling reason to think that it is that she was right all along and that this is actually a biblical event that is just being told in modern times and if that's the case to me uh, i'm not big on it man i'm not big on that reading i like it's to me like it the sociological aspect of people panicking and hurting each other or whatever like that like there's so much lip service paid through the obvious stand-in character ollie to the failings of people as a group the the, the line um 
fundamentally as a species we're we're fundamentally insane something like that i was like Mm -hmm. every time i hear that line when i watch this movie i was like frank was proud of that one and that was confirmed by watching the behind the scenes footage today of him repeating that line it's he considers it the thesis of this movie but if that's the case then man you've really kind of got you you he leaves it open enough to to a substantial amount of doubt and maybe that's to make us uncomfortable maybe that's like a really clever thing that he was doing that I was just never really thinking about, but it also kind of, it, the reason it's so clever is the reason that it hurts is because it kind of undercuts what you think you take from this movie and, or what I thought I was taking from this movie. I will say just knowing Stephen King so well and, in and watching the rest of the movie and having a good idea about what Frank Darabont was going for. I do not think that was his intention. <laughs> Um, yeah. was that Miss Carmody is right. And once the sacrifice is made, the mist is over. So I, I do not think that was the intention. Um, it's interesting to think about though. But think about this. When she gets shot, Ollie shoots her in the head. And there's this really funny moment where David turns to Ollie and says, thank you, Ollie. <laughs> and it's like just this fairly small moment. Really yeah, I love that too. But like it cuts back to her and she's laying in the cross formation with a pool of blood forming a halo around her head. Like, I mean, and also like the bug not attacking her, like the mosquito, whatever giant thing is dog sized mosquito that's on her and leaves her alone. Like, I don't know. Like I understand making things happen by happenstance to push people to believe her. And that sociologically makes sense. But we put all those things together and like the way that he's shooting her as literally a dying martyr with a halo makes me wonder if he doesn't mean to do it. Like, I don't know how that could be an accident. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that one. Hmm. So while we're, (laughs) while we're talking about, while we're talking about the uncomfortable things and we're, we're already talking about the end. Let's just, let's just talk about the end. Do you like the end? What do you think about the end? I love the end. Sincerely. It's like very few mainstream horror movies go this bleak and like it's understandable why it's not crowd pleasing it's not meant to make you happy it's meant to make you feel like crap and it succeeds at that and the thing is like that's a full range of human emotion it takes you to the darkest possibility and just makes you sit with that in a way that most movies just don't have the guts to do and that's like i'm okay with that most of the time tim it's just refreshing to see a movie be able to go that route and thematically with the rest of the movie it still tells a pretty compelling story it's less like this this whole thing like he kept his promise to his son that monsters never got him he did everything he could he did everything as right as he possibly could given the circumstances um a little debatably but mostly undebatably so and it's you know sometimes you do all that and the worst possible thing still happens and you just gotta like sit in it Sometimes a movie is good for that reason, like is, is improved for that reason. Like there's there's the more depressing movies out there. I would say like Martyrs is more depressing. Certainly there's more depressing movies for behind the camera reasons. But like there's a lot of movies that end in bleak notes. But this is such a mainstreamer. Like this is a Stephen King book. Like there's no like heartwarming losers club ending. There's none of that. Like, no, <laughs> I and just appreciate the- it. 
the novella ends differently. It's it ends pretty ambiguously, which is pretty common for Stephen King shorter works. Um, which mm-hmm. I am honestly, I'm a fan of an ambiguous ending. I know some people don't like it. Yeah. Um, but man, I I love this ending as well. I think it's the right ending. Uh, I agree with you. You don't see it very often. I feel like the movie earns it. Like it makes sense to me. Um, mm-hmm. and I remember. I remember the theater I was in. I remember where I was sitting in the theater. I remember who I was with when I saw this movie in the theater. And when we got to the end, nobody moved. Like when the movie was over, no one got up for like five minutes. I mean, it was incredible. It was so great. And like the way the movie ends to you've got that, like you've got the big music and then the music Mm -hmm. fades out and it's just the helicopters and the tanks. And you're just hearing like ambient music mm-hmm. or ambient noise and it just it, it, I remember it made you feel like I'm there with mm-hmm. him and yeah. this feels awful um, I, it's just one of the most memorable theater experiences I've ever had and so the fact for the fact that I, I love it and I think the movie earns it and also just that experience um, I, I mean I think it's one of like I think it's one of the great like all-time horror endings I really do I do too. I mean, like they're horror movies. <laughs> like they're not necessarily, you're not supposed to necessarily walk out with a smile. Like there's something absolutely to be said about like, Oh, you get yourself scared and then you laugh about it afterwards. And that's the appeal about horror movies to most people. That's why something like a bleak ending for like return of the living dead. It, you chuckle about it. It's not really like, it's not, it doesn't pierce your soul this way though, but sometimes you need a movie to do that to let you know where the bottom really is. And I'm glad you said that they earned it because they definitely earned it. Like this is like such a tightly written script, like almost to a fault. It feels it's a B movie. Like it is a B movie. It's the, the, the way that it's shot. A lot of the dialogue could be pulled right out of something from the fifties. And it's like, like tentacle monsters and stuff like this is a, B movie, but they're putting putting like every amount of seriousness that you can possibly imagine into it. They're taking it as seriously as possible. And I love when movies do that. I loved when the witch did that. It took something that is typically laughed at and seen as very silly and hokey. And it took it seriously to the point where you had no choice, but to engage with it on the level that it, that it is, that it's, that is presenting itself on and to end on a bleak note really just sells home. Like, just how wrong you were to laugh at this dumb idea. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Just to take it all the way back to what made those things horror fodder to begin with. So now that we've talked about the big, the big, big yeah. ending, um, <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk about some of the other things that this movie has going for it. Um, what do you think were some of the scariest moments? Cause it is a monster movie. It is. Um, I think honestly, like this movie is, is incredible because I can't decide if it's more terrifying when it's like like gruesome or more terrifying when it's somber and quiet. Like it's almost in equal measure and that that's a tough line to walk. I mean like you get you know the famous thing is you don't show the monsters. Well this movie shows the monsters and granted they've not aged perfectly in the years since, but I think that for the era they came out in you could qualify them as really impressive and i think that like most horror movies that i go into with monsters and that sort of thing like if they show a lot of it i'm not scared not Mm -hmm. the case in this movie and i think that has a lot to do with the biology of these monsters the way 
that they attack you are so unique, the way that they impact you. That mosquito bite on that woman's neck sticks oh. with me so hard. It's yeah. horrific. The guy who like has spiders burst out of him as he is babbling on about his military police job is insane. Like it's it's just like great gore stuff. But at the same time, probably the scariest thing about the movie, the mist is the mist. Like you just look <laughs> out and you see nothing and people are just left to imagine what terrible, terrifying things are out there until they aren't confronted with it in the most horrific ways possible. It's a tandem bicycle, man. I don't think you can do one without the other. So yeah, scariest yeah. moments. I think the mosquito thing got me, the spiders thing got me, but just in general, anytime they're walking through the mist and they do those weird soft cuts to different angles of walking through the mist, it, the tension's so high. <laughs> yeah. I have, I have similar thoughts. Um, I, from the very beginning and even watching it again this time, when we get that shot of the parking lot and we watch the mist roll in and the sirens are going off at the same time. That to me is a mm-hmm. really chilling moment. And I think part of it is because, um, because I live in the center of the country. I live in tornado alley. So I grew up with those tornado sirens. Mm. And so I think that's kind of what it reminds me of. And it's always like still and quiet kind of when those tornado sirens go off, the storm's not there yet. So it's usually like the sort of dead, space before things get crazy um and so that scene combined then with um dan i believe his name is running in and his face is bloody and the camera is kind of blurry and kind of jerky and so it feels really real and he's just like there's something in the mist like that whole (laughs) first initial setup is just like oh oh man like what what's gonna happen um and the spiders in the pharmacy man that whole scene is just so creepy and there's there's actually a couple moments of humor in that scene though you have miss repler with her little like torch where she's like torching the spiders and then uh dan like spears one you know that's kind of a funny moment but Mm -hmm. that whole scene is just horrific Um, especially when you realize too like the webbing is like acid and then everybody's trying to dodge the webbing it just takes it up a notch um and what you said about uh, the creatures, I I agree with. They don't hold up 100%, but they, they hold up pretty well. And I know you said you couldn't find the black and white version, but that is one of my biggest pros for the black and white version is all the creature effects kind of blend a little better. Because, um, yeah. you know, a lot of times in CG, the color is one of those things that's just not quite quite right color Mm -hmm. or like lighting or whatever just doesn't quite look like everything around it and in the black and white version yeah yeah, it just kind of flattens everything down um and you sort of feel you sort of feel like you're watching like a movie from the 50s also Mm -hmm. so you so if the creature effects aren't 100 right it just it sort of works with that version See, like, I'm very, I'm an easy mark for things like that. For, like, the, this is a B movie set with, you know, very, set as modern and sophisticated, like, with with characters who aren't stupid. Do you know what I mean? This is a B movie with, like, smart characters involved. Mm -hmm. Overly smart, you could even argue. And to a point where, like... Like having the that movie, this movie in black and white, I haven't gotten a chance to see it and I'm very, I really looked for it, but it just seems like it would be perfect for this because the thing, I'm a sucker for like 
old like something about a black and white movie it makes it transports you to uh what you think is a more innocent time so anything that's like off kilter anything that's eerie or whatever seems more so that would be incredible for this movie <laughs> like because the, it goes to such dark places but it does it so gradually and so like step by step that every step is a step deeper into like a more dark dark realm Black and white is perfect for that. That's exactly mm-hmm. what I want out of it. So, I mean, yeah. And then as far as the visual effects go, you're totally right. Like it's, it's really tough to get uh CG to look realistic at all. As we all know from <laughs> decades of or years of looking at movies that people fail to make convincing CGI. in. I mean, I think the character or not character, the creature designs are all impeccable, but they only had the technology they had. And you're right. Like having it in black and white it's a unifying thing. I feel like without having seen it, I, I totally can imagine it. Yeah. Um, one more scary thing I wanted to talk about is, um, the, the scene when, uh, they like corner the soldier Jessup and they're asking him about this, like, what are they doing up there? And, um, did you know about it? And that, that whole well, this is scary for two reasons. One, I I really like how they plant these seeds of this Arrowhead project, but mm. they don't ever get too specific. Like they don't dive too deep into exactly what was going on or exactly what was happening, and he doesn't even know. He's just heard rumors, so we assume that that's what's going on. They've you know ripped a hole into another dimension, and that's where these creatures are coming from. But it's like just enough of an explanation without getting too much in the weeds. But when they like stab him and throw him out into the mist and he puts his hand on the glass and after he gets like pulled back, just all that's left of him is his just handprint on the glass. Mm-hmm. And then they do this really like slow pan over to Miss Carmody and she says, the beast will leave us alone tonight. Tomorrow we'll have to see. Like that <sighs> is the moment to me where like everything takes a really dark turn and it seems like that's after that is when she starts to like gain more momentum with people Mm -hmm. like serious momentum that and then after the trip to the pharmacy a few people are like i can't even i'm done you know Mm -hmm. well i mean several people kill themselves in the the shop um and i I mean I i would argue that even before that because i mean they killed that guy in a religious fervor um and in out of righteous indignation probably like part of that is like holy shit, you work for the people who did this to us. Therefore, and then I'm, and the person who's been comforting me this whole time is telling me that you specifically are to blame and need to be sacrificed. So why not? I feel pretty mad that this is happening and that all these people have died. Why not kill another person? And that's the sort of like logical leaps that a a bad actor, a terrified and terrifying cult leader type person can push you to they they take those bad feelings and they direct them at a convenient surrogate and they allow you to take those things out on people and you do the horrible things to people because horrible things are happening to and around you and you need to rationalize it somehow you need to Mm -hmm. find something like toby says earlier um sorry toby jones ollie says earlier he's like um when they're trying to fix the the um the generator the generator thank you they're trying to fix the generator and they're like and, and tom jane's like we don't need to do this guys like we, we're not even running off this power right now you're you're gonna send a kid out into that mystery mist that people have been screaming about that i just saw something in 
just because like there's no reason to do that and toby go toby jones says look they're gonna do this because it's something they can control and right now that's the one mm-hmm. thing they desperately need that's part of the human condition is when you feel like you don't understand things the thing that's unsettling about that is not feeling in control so having somebody like mrs Carmody around who is from the beginning been getting it right whether or not it's an accident which i always assumed it was like mm-hmm. it's comforting to people in need of comfort and so they will defend that comfort if they come to a certain point and that's the point where it really to me that's that's when it's like all bets are off now like like before that people could have been pulled off the brink but i think they're too far gone at that point yeah and and that is like the centrally both interesting and frustrating thing about this movie is watching this group of people i mean they don't really they don't know what's going on scary things are happening but you've got Mrs. Carmody, who's convinced of one thing. And then also you've got uh, Brent Norton, the neighbor, is like, well, there's nothing in the mist at all. This is just a bunch of garbage and I'm going out. You know, He's a level-headed um, guy. He's yeah, a and judge. Like, and, we, and like, even though he's a jackass, like we kind of like him. Of course, also I love Andre Brower. So that's mm. part of the reason why I like him. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but like they have that, this movie excels at giving you just like little snippets of like sweet moments with people that really pay off. And at the beginning, when you see David and Brent and they're like, you're like, okay, they've, you know, this is like sensitive, but like they're making nice. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, he like holds Billy's hand to go into the store and like, that's all very lovely. So then when it's all ripped away very quickly and he's basically like, screw you. I'm glad my tree fell on your car. I'm taking these people into the mist. And he just, like, cannot be reasoned with. Mm-hmm. Like, he and Miss Carmody are very different, but they're both, mm-hmm. like, equally as resolute. And, like, no, we will not listen to each other. We will not be calm. We will not work together. We will do what we want to do and go our separate ways. And it's just so frustrating. You're just like, oh, my gosh, if you guys would just take a minute and work together and listen to each other, everything could be different. Everything could be different. You're right. You're absolutely right. But also, (laughs) um, Andre Brower's character, like, he's... He is such a res- like the way that he exudes <laughs> respectability, like as an actor, Andre Brower is just like he just does like he's like got this f- commanding voice. Like, I don't know, like I like he just demands respect. He's a high, highly respected person in the community or not in the community, but around the community, um, <clears throat> at least not according to the locals. So I don't know, like I'm a, like my rash. He 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 is rational to a, mm-hmm. to a fault. And that's an interesting point of view to have. I, I have a hard time like not seeing it his way when he's talking like he's okay. 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 Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but that is one of the things I wanted to ask you is yeah. if you were in the supermarket, like who would you go with? Would you choose to leave? Would you choose to stay? Mm-hmm. Even after Miss Carmody is like proselytizing, would you choose to go with David? Like, what at what point would you leave this supermarket or would you not? I would absolutely be like and I know it's like it's engineered this way, but I would be right with with uh, David for most of it. But at the beginning, that's the only time that like David to me is like 
he's not wrong. He's not doing anything wrong. He's doing it as, as calmly and he's trying to be as rational as possible to this very rational actor, but like he's not selling it well. And I have a hard time putting myself in Andre Brower's shoes and thinking to myself, why wouldn't I feel the same way he's feeling right now? Why would I like, why would I then go into the back room with these guys, several of which have grudges against me potentially, or who at least don't like me very much. Like what, why would I believe that this isn't something that's just an in poor taste prank? And the thing that I keep coming back to is I just think that me personally, I'm a little bit more, I just feel like I would be more willing to hear him out and like, be like, okay, well I'll go back there, but I'm taking this guy, this guy, and this guy who are friends of mine. We're going in there together and we're just going to take a look and we'll make an assessment from there. And if there's nothing's that back there, then we'll, we're going to continue with that knowledge. But I would have gone in the back with backup. I would not have gone in the back exactly as they had set it up because I would be very dubious and be very scared that some, somebody was trying to pull, pull, pull one over on me. So yeah. I guess well, that's he, why he is, um, his motivation is very believable in that scene because we yeah. have seen what David and Ollie have seen, but you would never expect rational people to believe there's a monster on the loading dock. I mean, you would just never, which is why he goes to Brent in the first place is because he's like, well, he, he's respected. He can convince people I'm going to get to him first and then he's going to help me. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not uh, a far leap that he wouldn't believe him, but yeah, when he's just so, um, opposed to even looking to even considering it, um, that's when sort of the frustration starts, even though he's justified in doing so. And I'm sad that he died yeah. I mean, I'm sad that he died because I'm sad that he died. But also I was like, man, I really would have liked to watch him <laughs> in the rest Struggle of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's just such a great actor. And I mean, just in general, the cast and this is great. They're all. Oh, my God. They're this all cast is so stacked. fun to watch. Yeah. I mean, I like Tom Jane a lot. <laughs> like I, I, I feel like I don't see him that often anymore. Like or like mm-hmm. I just don't think I never feel like he got. He got as many leading man roles as I think he was probably owed by, by the universe. This is kind of proof of that to me. But Marsha Gay Harden's in this movie. Toby Jones is in this movie. William Sadler's in this movie. <laughs> this is a char- feast of character actors, and it, yes. it pays off so beautifully. Um, but yeah, like Andre, like the thing about Andre Brower's character is as much as like all that stuff, I would be very dubious. You also had Dale run in with a bloody nose saying there's something in the mist. And at the end of the day, I'm like, do I trust this man's account? Do I trust this other man's account? Mm-hmm. Do, like I would, I would be more willing to listen because that happened. Yeah. And that did I not think. seem, I mean, he seemed very rational, just yeah. upset. Like he seemed like genuinely just something crazy just happened. They I mean, him a Xanax, is bleeding. Like, yeah. Clearly it's not, you don't give somebody a Xanax because they're like, because they're acting that well, you'd give it because they're freaking out. Right. Like, I don't know. So I don't know. I just, just to go back to that for a second, but like, yeah, the character, the, the actors in this movie and like, and also like, this is kind of, this movie feels a little bit like a dry run for walking dead, um, both in theme <laughs> tone and actors. Like you've got, uh, I can't remember some of these characters, Jeffrey DeMunn, who is Dale in, in the first several seasons of walking dead. You've got mm-hmm. Lori Holden. You've got, um, Carol, Carol's name, whatever her name is. <laughs> you've got so many characters are actors in this movie that, that transfer over. And those are some like Jeffrey DeMunn is in several Darabont movies, if I'm not mistaken. Like he's in Green yeah. Mile. Uh, mm-hmm. He might even be, 
in Shawshank. I can't remember, but you know, like yes, he's got he, his is in, he is in Shawshank. He's one of the prison guards in Shawshank. There you go. So I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's just man, it's just a it's just a feast for for character actors in this, and I love a good character actor. I really do. William Sadler's so great. His character in this is so like. He plays a shithead so well. It's so beautiful to watch his transition. Like, yeah, the he is like the stand in for every dumb guy you've ever known. But like to a hundredth degree, who's going to every single time make the dumb decision every time, even when he realizes he's wrong. He's still saying like, well, I didn't know what you meant. Why don't you talk good? Like, it's so great to watch. And then also he's fun to watch when he's completely snapped and he's gone over to Miss Carmody's side. Yeah. He's also a delight to watch as a crazy person. He's screaming and like doing like, you know, being her like number one fan out in the front yeah. and screaming for expiation. Expiation. <laughs> That's so fun. Oh, I had to look up the definition for expiation, by the way. I was like, you know, context clues, it. but I want to know for sure. <laughs> It is the act of making amends or reparation for guilt or wrongdoing. Atonement. There we go. Sesame Street. Now we all know what well. expiation means. I love so other- Toby Jones in this movie, but like oh, when yeah. he says that, it's like it's it's too glib. I'm like, okay, this is a little indulgent. Like the Toby yeah. Jones character is so much like the, the one-liner machine, but like in a calm and like docile kind of way. It, it's great oh, for a while, but sometimes it's like, okay, this is like, and everyone stood up and clapped kind of story moment. <laughs> like, you know, a little yeah. bit much. I love that little piece of his character too, where he's like, yeah, the target shooting champion. He's just this little nerdy little man and nobody would think that he could do anything with the gun. He's like, yeah, you know. Well, yeah, people look down on him. He's literally a bag boy. And like, th- that's one of the things that they don't really dive into too much in this movie is like, how people's station in the world change based on catastrophic circumstances. They deal with it with Marsha Gay Harden's character, obviously, but mm-hmm. like for the most part, people, I don't know. People are just kind of like reeling in this movie and not really like the, the hierarchies aren't fully well-defined until kind of towards the end or redefined, I guess I should say. And by then it's like so many of these characters, you don't really like, you don't know where they land on that hierarchy structure. Yeah. I don't know what I was getting at. <laughs> no, that's an interesting, that's something I hadn't thought about. That's a whole other, I, there's lots of different lenses you can look at this movie through. And that's one of them that I have never thought about. But yeah, everybody kind of shifts because at the very beginning, like you were saying, they, they're basically just like, oh yeah, just, just so you know, Mrs. Carmody is known for being unstable and nobody wants to listen to her. And then, yeah, she slowly becomes the most and powerful Toby's, person in the uh, room. And Ollie is like the only other character that kind of does that transformation to, a, to that extent where it's like. Literally a bag boy, all around guy you like, but just, a, you know, a guy working, an older guy working at a grocery, you know, not not highly necessarily highly respected profession to, you know, the high achievers in the world. But here he is with all these like incredible insights uh, with an incredible command of firearms, which is desperately needed. Like he is kind of the Daryl Dixon of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, in the Bible, it says somewhere the last will be first and the first shall be last. So he is pretty meek, but he doesn't inherit a damn thing. No, (laughs) no, it's very I know it's so many really sad deaths in this movie. His is one of them. You know, well, he would. I mean, he wouldn't have made it anyway. Yeah. But (laughs) 
<laughs> Unless he had gone back like his boss did, which who yeah. knows? If he oh, made. that's another scene that strikes me um, as like really the, ugh, the manager, like whenever ended up having uh, back is what I'm talking about. But but I think it's his name. He has to go. Back, he goes. He gets back into the store, and he's standing there watching them drive away. And his face is just like dejected. I was actually surprised they let him in. I thought that they were going to take another moment to show showcase the cruelty of like the iron fist that Miss um, Carmody had for following her principles. I guess at that point she's gone, but like. Maybe that's the key is that she at that point is dead. And so they don't have a religious zealot leader to really <laughs> brain the fire and brimstone down. But even then, like I would have thought William Sadler's character would have been like an angry, vengeful little jerk enough to have just been like, nope, you're out. You said no. And you killed them. You're one of them. Not one of us. One of them. Yeah. And just I let don't him know. die. I, they had such a she had such like a, a stronghold over those people. That's actually this this leads me into another another thing I wanted to uh, talk about is just other than scary stuff like what moments like resonate the most and that was one for me whenever after she gets shot and I mean people just drop their weapons and they no longer are trying to stop this group. It's like it's, I mean they were all ready to kill a child and in a moment it's like yeah, they come the back hive to their mind senses. shuts down. Yeah. Well, do you think they came back came to their senses cuz I, I think they I think they were all like shocked and like, you're right. Like the hive mind, I feel like there was a hive mind mentality that was, that caused them all to just be like, Oh no. And it's that and a gun, obviously they, they all, anyone, uh, Oh, they're serious. They're shooting people now. I don't want to be shot. I don't have a gun. I'm not going to jump into the middle of this anymore. Than I already have, but so there's some self-preservation there, but I don't know that like, I don't know that if, if Dave, if David had, just popped her in the skull and like killed her that way with his broom handle. Like, I don't know that they would have reacted that way. Or if they would have just been like, because one of that one woman starts yelling at him, like you murder, you murdered her. They were like an inch away from going right back to religious fervor. They were just kind of in shock. That was my read on it. Yeah. I mean, I think they were definitely in shock, but I do think that, I don't know. I think she was really the driving force and she clearly brought out the worst in them and they were ready to do whatever she wanted them to do. But without her, I think they might have gotten back to where they were, but I think it would have taken them a long time to sort of regroup, yeah. you know, uh, because, agree. yeah, the, the one woman was initially like, yeah, you murdered her, like, even though they were, they were ready to murder someone. Back- if they were going to build right back up, it would have had to happen right at that moment. It would have had to happen before they left the room, but yeah. the gun allowed them to leave the room. If they had stayed right. there, I think it would have gone right back to where it was. And maybe that lady who was yelling at them becomes the like de facto next leader. The thing is, like the truest believer is going to pick up where the last true believer left off, regardless of how horrible it is. And they're going to put their own spin on it eventually. But they, in order to maintain control, they have to walk the tightrope that is already there for them laid down by Carmody get to the seat of power and then and then throw their weight around a little bit so like she would have had to or whoever would have had to be like like follow the same fire and brimstone sort of approach that Carmody was pulling just to keep the unit together keep that hive together long enough for that person to fully take control it's yeah. like any well, and, religious institution works kind of the same way. It's just not necessarily barbaric. <laughs> right. Well, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, and they even have, 
Miss Carmody has been martyred even. So they would mm-hmm. have like this point to rally around, this cause to rally around. Yeah. Um, and if the mist also continues, right, they would probably still believe, well, we still haven't made our sacrifice because it can't be. This was really uh, like nuanced and interesting too. how Miss Carmody, it's not just anyone. The sacrifice has to come from the doubters and the prideful. Mm-hmm. It has to come from their group. Yeah. So that conveniently sets always sets up the them versus us. And it's not us. You mm-hmm. know, we're holy and we're pure and it's them. You know, they yeah. have to sacrifice. They have to be the ones to atone. It's so true. That, and you know, that dichotomy is still set up in those groups. And, you know, like one thing that surprises me about this movie and that like to a point where I'm kind of like, I wonder if this was maybe a little like done too much for shock value and not so much following the human nature that I find so interesting about what they're talking about. But like the idea that they would just jump to sacrificing the child, like, I don't know, like this is even in the situation they're in, even as in like just a couple days they've been there and how much they've devolved. I feel like infanticide is still or I don't know if that's right actually that might be apparent but like the killing of a child is still kind of like the one great transgression that you will never ever 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 dig yourself out of for you know pretty good reason like that's it's inherently genetically and morally like hated and it may Mm -hmm. have happened a few times there may have been some some close brushes and some stuff like that in the Bible and in other religious texts but ultimately, like people are repulsed by that. So the idea that people would go along with that right away, even in that furor, I really feel like they sh- like the more logical thing would be for Marsha Gay Harden to point at David Drayton or Lori, who she just specifically hates. I think that speaks more right. to like who I see Carmody to be, which is ultimately a scared, petty, violent person who thinks of herself as above these people, especially certain people. Yeah. And, you know, I think something that really irks me about Ms. Carmody, I think she's a great character. I love watching her, but as somebody who is still a person of faith to see people like that on screen is really like really infuriating in other ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and again, like it's totally fair and like, it's what makes this movie great. But one thing I really love in the inclusion of this movie, and this character is not in the book at all. Um, oh, I didn't know there's, that. there's the, well, there's the, the biker guy. Oh, so the the biker guy that like volunteers to tie the rope around his waist for David to see how far they get um, before he leaves the pharmacy, he says, you know, I believe in God, too, but I don't believe he's the bloodthirsty asshole that you make him out to be. <laughs> yeah. And like that guy, I was like, oh, it's like, thank goodness for that guy, you know, because mm-hmm. um, we don't get any of that in the novella. Um, but I think from what I know about Stephen King, he doesn't talk about his like spiritual beliefs very specifically. Um, He has said that he does, he's not a fan of organized religion. Mm -hmm. Um, But just from reading his work and things he said, I do think he believes and like believes in God or believes in a higher power. And because he, he, most of his books, there is a little, like there's a hopeful ending. I think that he wants to believe that like 
things will work out in the end and that the higher power is good and all of that. So I almost feel like that guy and that statement is like a little bit of a stand in for Stephen King's larger, larger views. um, Mm -hmm. If he will permit me to presume such a thing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But as, as somebody who's just endlessly frustrated by her and by lots of people that I see, uh, in religious institutions. I just love that guy. I'm like, yes, that's what we yeah, need. That's the counterbalance that like a lot of religious people need. And a lot of, like, I mean, we all need a counterbalance really. And that's uh, when you get to one extreme, when you're starting to become literally bloodthirsty for, for murdering people or for seeing people die and you're taking joy and the misery of so many people, it's like, that most most common understandings of religion understand that to be not the point <laughs> like you know uh, yes not the point it's a reflection of the person who is who who is religious as to what that religion means to them and i think that like you know the comedies of the world they f- certainly exist and they present a real and present danger to anybody who thinks differently than them. And then you've got people who just, you know, have their beliefs and, you know, pursue those beliefs and, you know, do whatever like that makes sense, but like does not impose themselves on others. I think that like, that's one of the key differentiators in Christianity to other religions is the need to bring people in and proselytize. It's an aggressive stance, uh, or at least it can be, it gives license for aggression, So I think that's Uh, something that's really hard for people who are more like more demure and more open-minded to, to grapple with. Certainly it's the thing, one of the things that turned me off to organized religion. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, it's under the, it's under the veil of, of if you're Miss Carmody, it's under the veil of absolute righteousness and the will of God, but it also comes under the veil of like, Oh, but this is like for, this is for the good of those that I'm trying to reach, you know? Mm -hmm. So you have sort of this, like the ends justify the means type situation um, that you're set up with, which again, in this movie is kind of present as well. So um, yeah. In a system where it requires that you believe in spite of lacking anything to validate those beliefs. Like the, it just gives it, it basically is just like your impulse is right. Period. Like you, you, the impulses that you kind of are ashamed of, you bottle up and you say, no, that impulse is wrong. But the other impulses, Oh, telling other people how to live that way. That's something that you have the license to do. And you have the moral prerogative to enforce upon them. And that's how we end up with like, you know, like theocracies and things like that and government. So, yeah, let's just say this. I think Miss Carmody spent a lot of her Bible reading time in the Old Testament and in Revelation. And I think she just skipped over a lot of the New Testament. That's <laughs> well, I want to know what passage uh, the line. If I want a friend like you, I'll just have a little squat and shit one out. I want to know what what's the by bi- what's the verse there. Yeah, that's a that's a really nasty telling little scene with Miss yeah. Carmody for sure. Like, there's nothing like, and, and that's the thing is like, p- if people who believe in a truly vengeful God, it, they don't have any reason not to act that way. Like it's like being nice isn't a commandment, <laughs> you know. You know, not coveting things and whatever. Like, and and everything is infinitely interpretable. So. 
those people can totally exist and self-justify and self-propagate. And if they are charismatic enough and in chaotic enough times, they can get people to believe them. And that's why, I mean, we see cults formed around that exact phenomena all the time, Christian or Mm -hmm. otherwise. Okay. I think we're round in the corner here. (laughs) So is there anything else you want to dive into before we get to our final thoughts? Are there anything in your notes or anything that we didn't touch on? No, no. I'm very freewheeling talking about this. I think that I just spilled my guts. So That's what brung it down on us. That's what brung down the wrath of God. Hey, folks. Editor Nicole is breaking in here because I got caught up in the conversation and there are a couple of points that I wanted to talk about that I forgot to bring up. Um, One of them is the mother in the beginning who leaves to go back to her children because she can't leave them alone. Um, She asks for help and no one will help her. At the end, she survives. And I'm like, I feel like that means something, but I don't know what, like, what does that mean? And then also just in general, I wanted to talk about like, what is this movie saying beyond just like religious fanaticism is bad? Uh, That's very obvious uh, with Miss Carmody, like we get that. So I was like, is there anything else going on in this movie beyond just that? And I think those two things can possibly be kind of linked. There's a lot of faith in this movie. Um, And I'm not just talking about religious faith or or Miss Carmody's faith. There's a lot of taking a leap because of what you believe, even though you don't necessarily have proof. Um, And a lot of them don't really end well. But the mother is kind of the one ray of hope in that. She had to step out for her children, not for herself, uh, and it paid off. And it makes me wonder if other people had joined her, had offered to help her and go with her, would they also have survived? So clearly, Miss Carmody, we understand exactly what her faith is and what she believes. You know, her faith is, she has faith in the fact that this is the apocalypse and this is the judgment of God. Um, She believes she has all the context and knows everything about it and is willing to carry out whatever means are necessary in order to deliver her and her people from this situation. Um, Brett Norton, he has faith in the fact that this isn't even real. You know, there's nothing in the mist. We're just going to leave the store and it's going to be fine. And it doesn't pay off for him. Um, No, we don't know for sure that everyone in his party died, Uh, but we know at least a few of them did because we hear the screams and see the monsters, and then, of course, we see the back half of the the guy who had the rope tied around his waist. And then also, David and his group have to take a leap of faith. They choose to leave the store because they believe that taking the chance and going out into the mist is better than whatever may befall them in the grocery store. And, you know, no one really has, like I said, proof that the choices they're making, the leaps they're taking are going to pay off. Everyone has to just assess the situation based on what they've seen and make a decision, um, which is what we do often in our daily lives. Um, But back to David, I mean, I personally believe that his decision to leave the store was a good one and probably the right one. And it's really a bummer that it ultimately didn't pay off. 
Um, even the fact that he chooses to end the lives of the people in the car and face the monsters himself, I mean, that's such a hard decision. But again, it's really the... It's really the more kind of noble and kind decision in the long run. And um, there is the scene where his son, Billy, is it says, promise me that you won't let the monsters get me. And he says, I promise. Um, and that's such an important little scene. It's such an important piece uh, because we it helps us understand why in the world David could choose to do that even though he doesn't know for sure that they're gonna that they're gonna die when they run out of gas um but because of everything they've seen it stands to reason that they are going to be ended by the monsters and he's promised his son I will not let the monsters get you so he does the more merciful thing so again it's just really a bummer that his leap of faith does not pay off the way that we would want it to There's also uh, this idea of, like, the sacrifice of a son that's, you know, the cornerstone of Christianity and how uh, the sacrifice of the son is very difficult for the father to see. Um, I don't think that necessarily has any specific bearing on this movie. It's just something that struck me on this watch. So, yeah. Anyway, I I just wanted to take a few minutes to go down that road and explore the idea of faith and what that means to different people and how different people interpret it and how um, even if we aren't religious, um, we all have to take leaps of faith at different points in our lives. That can be with, I mean, just everyday things like, should I take this job? Um, Of course, we have faith in our partners, our spouses, our family. Um, it's, it's something that I think we can all identify with, whether that's on a religious topic or not. Okay, now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Give me your final wrap-up. We don't do, like, scores on this show, but just give me your, give me your final thoughts on The Mist. Ten stars. No, um, <laughs> uh, my final thoughts of this movie, I really, really like this movie. Like for all the reasons I've already talked about, like sociological aspect, I'm challenged by the idea that there is an, an a f- supported interpretation of this movie that goes counter to that and is actually like, nope, <laughs> the worst person in the movie was right all along. And it's that the onion image of the guy. But like that's, <laughs> I don't know. Like I, I think beyond that stuff, it's a tightly written narrative that is like kind of it's a little bit by numbers but it's played so strongly and the acting is so strong and some of the dialogue is so pointed and it gets so bleak that it infuses an otherwise classically seen as silly idea or silly like uh, another movie with this premise would have been sillier this movie does not allow its silly premise to be taken as a silly premise. And I think that's such a strength. Um, And it does it while still keeping true to like, as much as it has sharp dialogue and things like that, it also has 
like dialogue that seems like it could be pulled right out of the fifties. And like, it has moments that like some of the shots, like David at the end of the movie, as, as bleak as that scene is. And as much as it seems like that's like, would never happen in the fifties, the way that they pull out the shot and like the swell of music that they do for a second. And just the way things are shot, like it, they do like Dutch angles and stuff for this movie. They do a lot of stuff that feels perfectly in sync with older movies, but they're playing them so straight and so hard and infusing so much like vinegar into this, into the concoction that it comes out feeling incredibly unique to me. <laughs> like as much as it's using tried and true everything, it's, it's just a well-balanced recipe is I guess what I'm going to land on. It's just a really well-balanced movie. And for all of the things you could point out as being like a little inconsistent or a little bit weak or a little bit silly, you can counterbalance it with something else. So I think it's strong as hell personally. How about you? Um, Watching this again, I just kept thinking this is just a good horror film. You know, we've got the spectacle of like the monsters. I think the gore is really effective and hard hitting. There's like just enough of it. Um, but also like, just like you said, like it could, like, even when I was reading the synopsis, like some of the things I was reading, I'm like, that sounds kind of silly, but they pulled off making it all very believable and all very serious. Um, and I think a lot of that is because we are constantly kind of putting ourselves in the shoes of the characters. Um, and like most, all the characters are interesting, even like the little characters, everybody interacting together is, is just very interesting. Um, and like you said, it's got a bit of that old fashioned quality and it feels like a fifties black and white monster movie, even if you're not watching the black and white version. Um, and I'm pretty sure in the intro, um, not in dark forces, but in this story is also in skeleton crew, which is a short story collection. And Stephen King always puts a little like intro before his stories. And, um, this is not a direct quote, but he basically says like, imagine this in black and white at a drive-in. Like, that's how he wants oh, you to, man. like, read the story, you know. Um, and, of course, I know you share this with me and that I really like it when horror movies have a message that I can, like, think about and chew on. And, of course, this movie has that message. And it's it's not buried very deep. It's right on the surface. But it still is, like, is deep and meaningful. Um, of course, it points out the flaws in humanity and the hubris of humans um, and, and the, those themes are also often present in those old black and white monster movies. There's a lot of like examining of, of man and morality. And like I said earlier, it just, I think it has one of the all time great endings in a horror film. And I've seen over the years, people just hate the end of this movie. <laughs> and then there are people like us who think it's the greatest thing ever. Um, so I really appreciate that dialogue and that reaction like this movie is never going to just fade away and be forgotten because solely because of that ending and um also frank darabont took less money so he could get that ending the studio was like we will give you a bigger budget and he was like i don't want your money so That's i really right. really respect that yeah he was like he he had the rights to this movie for years. It took him decades to make it. And when he got when he got his small budget, he was like, I will make the movie that I want to make. And I think that really shines through. Can I, I can I infuse sure. just one moment of graphic sure. designer to graphic designer talk here? So you were saying that 
you know, people hate the ending of this movie and it just immediately made me think of something that's been happening this week, which is that some of the work that I've been working on has been focus group tested over the last couple of weeks. And I've got to sit in on some of those focus groups and see what people have to say about it. And it's kind of a serious topic. It's a PSA. Um, I'm legally not allowed to say more than that, but, right. um, but uh, some of the reactions we get from these things, people are very skeptical or dubious or whatever, but like people really only respond positive positively to the concepts that we were presenting to them that had positive messages, you know, like there's a way, like different ways of approaching something like you're pointing out different things like, Oh, this is important because your family's important and you want to be around for your family. And, or, but like, and then we had other, other concepts are like, here's a hard statistic. X number of people die because of this problem. Maybe it's worth looking into and people hate that they like <laughs> viscerally do not want to be confronted with anything. They can, I think that people fundamentally like especially when you're like asking people to be critical of something if it makes them feel bad regardless of whether or not feeling bad is justified for the topic they will see that as a negative and that's not unfair especially if you're trying to sell something or whatever Mm -hmm. like but when it comes to artwork or whatever this is the bold move this like the fact that he took less money is just like and like further emboldens me to say like yeah this is clearly something that was not made with satisfactory ratings in mind. It was made with, here's the message. You need to grapple with it. It's not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be fun. And that's what I like about movies that are willing to take that risk or artworks that are willing to take that risk and make you a little uncomfortable. And I say that as somebody who has made even more uncomfortable about this movie. (laughs) this time around than I ever was before. Yeah. I mean, 100% like that is like, like I said, like I feel like every time I watch it, like I notice little things I didn't notice before, you know? Mm. Um, and I really love that about it. Um, I also think, I don't know, like this movie is still after all these years, like very emotional for me too. Like when I was watching it this time, I expected to just, oh, I'm just going to like brush up on it. It's been a while. And I still was like, like I said earlier, when the mist rolled in, I was like, I kind of had chills and I was like sort of on edge. I'm like, I know what's going to happen, but it's just, I don't know. It, it, it frustrates me at times. It, It makes me excited at times. It makes me sad, of course, at the end. Um, I mean, I just don't know what's going to happen to David after this, but, um, I think ultimately like my final word on the mist is that it's a story that I think it's going to stick with me for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's completely fair. Yeah. It's certainly going (laughs) to stick through. Like you said, it's, it's going to, it's reputation is going to carry it through. It's going to be talked about in horror circles for forever. And not just because it's got a cool iconic monster or killer in the center or one of those other reasons, not just because it makes people laugh because it's so schlocky, but because it's got something going on under the hood. Yeah. Oh, one thing I wanted to mention and I didn't is uh, the music in this movie is very interesting. And like, I really, really love the big swell at the end with just mostly like the organ and the voice. And the name of that song is Host of Seraphim, which is another revelation That's reference. An angel, isn't it? Yes. The seraphim is, angel? Yeah, I think it's the angel with the eyes all, all so, over yeah. it and the wings. Um, yeah. But that song already existed 
and the composer picked it for this movie. So I find that very like a, f- a fun little like happenstance. Is that an angel but... of judgment? Is that what a seraphim is? Um, I don't remember. I don't, but I don't know particularly. It would be appropriate if it was. It would be. <laughs> and it, it would, would be, be yet another reason for me to be de- uncomfortable with the idea that Carmody could have been right. If I, I'm, I'm going to make a shirt that says Carmody was right and it's going to get... <laughs> Like completely plastered all over T public. Let's let, do it. I'll buy yeah. one. Sign me up. I wouldn't buy one, but I know people will. <laughs> I know. It's like, oh well, we may be chased out of places if we wore that shirt in public. There's an ar- <laughs> there's a legitimate argument to say that this is a very Bible friendly movie, which is shocking considering yes. how many times I've seen it and not well and felt the opposite. <laughs> And I, I, you know, was doing research on it and there are people out there that are like critical of it because they're like, oh, it's a conservative view. And I'm like, well, you can read it that way if you want. But just again, because I know the source material and I know the people who made it and I have some idea of what their view of the world is. I'm like, I just yeah. don't think that's the intention. I just don't think that. In a vacuum, I could totally see it, though. And I I. The more I the more I think on it, the more apparent it is to me that 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 is an intentionally that is an intentional signal being sent to the audience. But I don't think it's because it's telling us that that is the correct way to interpret it, but rather it's allowing ambiguity to continue to infest and make us doubt in the thing that even within the text of a lot of the movie, you are made to be sure of. And that Carmody's unstable. Maybe not. Like, like if everything's in question, everything comes down to your personal belief. And so that's what's so terrifying is you don't know what you don't know will cause you to behave in ways that are maybe unpredictable. And I mean, if that's not the core of the movie, then I don't know what is. Yeah, that's a good point. Frank Darabont continuing to make us uncomfortable. What a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) So, Randy. Mm hmm. If you don't have any stories, that's okay. But I like to watch this movie during the summer for like lots of reasons. It just feels like a summer horror movie to me. Mm-hmm. Do you have any like favorite summer vacation memories you would like to share? Or like, do you have any like vacation gone wrong stories? Have you ever been stranded in a supermarket? Oh, man. Um, I mean, I've gone on summer vacations many times. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't have a whole lot of like really awesome summer gone wrong stories i guess one and this is kind of just like unfortunate um the beginning towards the beginning of summer vacation when i was i want to say like eight um i was playing at a friend's house down the street and he was he had a slingshot and a bunch of bbs and was shooting bb gun not a bb gun shooting bbs through his slingshot at cans or something and somehow or another probably I mean, I have no reason not to think it was was partially, at least partially, my fault. I wound up getting hit in the eyeball with the BB, and I had like a whole summer of not being able to see out of that eye and having to do like lots of work on it. And that was for a while, yeah. And I like (laughs) I remember the night I went to the hospital, and I was just like, they took it off. All right, let's see what you can see, and it was the mist (laughs) in one eye. It was literally the mist. It was terrifying and then the following summer i wound up long story short uh there was some disarray at the house we were painting 
and I walked past a tile that just completely cut my leg open. And so I couldn't walk all summer. And then the following summer after that is when I was diagnosed with cancer. So I had a run of summers that just kind of sucked. I don't know about summer vacations didn't really happen for me for a while. That's terrible. Yeah. So that that's about as close as I come to a, a scary story for summer. Yeah, I don't have any any like summer gone wrong stories I can think of, but every time I watch this movie, it does remind me of um we used to go to the lake every 4th of July and we would go it started as like a couple day thing and then expanded to like a week long thing. We would run out we would run out a big house and invite like all of our friends a lot of them from youth group. Um, and then we would just be out on the boat all day. Like it was fun, but we would always side hug. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. (laughs) Girls, please wear a one piece and a t-shirt. No, that was not the case on my parents' boat. We could wear whatever we wanted, but anyway. Um, so, but we would always like go to the grocery store to like buy groceries for the week. And so I always think about those times when I watched this movie, Um, I never had a bad experience in the supermarket. Well, I did have a woman, not on vacation, but just when I was at Publix in Lakeland, Florida, one day, um, I was at the meat counter, like shopping for meat. And this woman backed into me with her motorized cart, like like, pinned me to the case. Like I heard I was shopping and I heard beep, 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 beep. And the next thing I knew, I'm like crushed against (laughs) the meat How do you think they get their meat? She's a trigger man. Yeah. yeah. And she didn't move for a while either. And she didn't apologize. Like typical old crusty Florida lady. <laughs> man. It wasn't great. That, that's wasn't a breed. Great. That's a breed yeah. all its own. So do you have any recommendation for similar stuff for people to watch if they like the mist? Have you thought of anything? Yeah, I ha- I've been thinking about this. You had, you had prompted me with this earlier and. The one that I just keep coming up with because of the very analogous character that is Mrs. Carmody is Midnight Mass. Bev Keen and Miss Carmody should oh. have a bridge club in hell. Um, yes. <laughs> no, like this is like, uh, for those who don't know, it's a miniseries on Netflix. Um, and it's it's very, it's got a lot of similar themes to this movie. It's less bleak, but not not bleak. Um I think that it, it offers, we were talking about like offering balance and like how the, mm-hmm. um, the, the motorcycle guy or whatever said, like, I don't think God's an asshole like you do like this, that whole, it's a long form show of about like, I want to say like 10 hours or something like that, that really allows you to dig in to the contrasting feelings about supernatural and, you know, gods and monsters and all that stuff. So yeah, I recommend that. I think that if you're going to, and it's also very Stephen Kingish. Everybody mm-hmm. thought so then and everybody thinks so now. And I think this is, this is in part why, because it talks about the hypocrisy of some faiths and like the bigotry in many forms and all sorts of things like that. I would say that's the one that I would point to. Yeah, that would be a great pairing. Um, and I, I would say like Mike Flanagan needs to take a page out of Frank Darabont's book because I loved the ending of Midnight Mass. I think it was very appropriate. But on the whole, that man cannot land a horror ending. He's way too sentimental. <laughs> He's not willing to break the heart of his audience. I, he needs 
he needs to take a lesson from Uncle Frank and like give us a dark ending, Mike Flanagan. I know you have it in you. You did it with Oculus. You did it with Absentia. Yeah. You can do it again. <laughs> true, true. He, yeah, he's not completely without this. And like, I, I don't know. I like the endings. That he, I, I like him a lot. Like, so I think there's only a handful of his projects that I haven't enjoyed. And they were usually not for the ending being being weak. It was yeah. usually bigger issues than that. Um, looking at you, Dr. Sleep. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, I think yeah, that's anyway, a good Yeah. We'll pick on Mike Flanagan on another day. Um, <laughs> so I have kind of a long list of stuff, but like three quarters of it is other Stephen King stuff. Um, but right off the bat, this reminded me of the Twilight Zone episode, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. I was going to bring that up earlier. Yeah, yeah, it's a very similar story. And of course, it's the black and white feel. Um, I'm sure there's lots of Twilight Zone episodes that have parallels, but that one is like spot on. Um, also, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original one from 56. It's like classic black and white monster movie. Paranoia abounds. Mm-hmm. Um and then to get into the Stephen King stuff, uh, the novel Under the Dome, which I just read maybe six months ago, it's a big end. It's a doorstop, um, but it's very much a small town. Everybody's literally under a dome. They don't know where it came from or what it is, but people start taking sides. You know, chaos reigns. We're, you know, rooting for a protagonist that's very similar to David Drayton in a lot of ways. Um, so if you can read thousand pages of king and you like that setup under the dome um there's also a delightful little short story in nightmares and dreamscapes called crouch end and it's very lovecraftian and i believe the creatures in crouch end are probably very akin to the creatures in the mist um there's this this place that's basically a thin place in the world where things can come through from the other dimension but it's a it's a, just a short kind of subtle story and it's it's very creepy um and then i would also recommend the documentary that andy brought up earlier it's called when darkness came the making of the mist it's available on youtube um i will link it but it's about 30 40 minutes long so it's very short but you get a lot of just frank darabont's technique of how he made this movie his joy making this movie um, I just, I think it's really good and it has a lot of little gems if you're at all interested. Um, and the last thing I will recommend is, um, I, there's a podcast I listen to a Stephen King podcast called the losers club. These mm-hmm. people do deep dives on everything. Um, they're the biggest King nerds ever. And they have an episode like a three and a half hour episode about this movie. And they go Holy way God. more in depth than we did. Um, they share a lot of our views though. Which is interesting. So um, I like them. That episodes. Yeah, that episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's all my recommendations. So, Randy, before we go, plug your stuff. Okay. Um, So I am on a (laughs) horror film centric podcast called Straight Chilling. I'm one of three hosts. We've been doing it for so many years now. Uh, We're going on 500 episodes sometime next year. Um, It's... You know, uh, we have so many movies. We review one movie every month. I'm sorry, every week. Excuse me. We've been doing that for a long, long time, as well as a bunch of mini episodes available and um, some uh, YouTube content and all kinds of other stuff. So we're out there doing stuff. We're constantly kept busy doing all kinds of horror related things. So check us out, especially on our podcast. The main feed is on any podcatcher you can think of. 
Straight chilling. That's a hard G. Not a soft <laughs> G. It's a hard G. So you get the pun. Yeah, I uh, I meant to mention at the beginning that you were from Straight Chilling, and I think I just glazed right over it, which if people have been listening to my show for any length of time, they know who Straight Chilling is. They're like <laughs> horror besties. You know, you guys are all all besties of the pod. So I'm you, sure the people know the who OG you are. the OG of the OGs, so I'm sure your listeners have, have seen the crossover here or there. Yes, yes. And you guys... And I've, if they don't want to listen, I don't blame them. Yeah. <laughs> No, like if you're listening for a horror review show like Straight Chilling, it's always where I send people. You guys have been doing it so long. You have a great rapport. It's entertaining. Like you got a good system. It's just it's a good show. If you listen to no other horror review show, that's the one. Straight Chilling. I appreciate that. It's extremely (laughs) low stakes. So you can come out of it hating us and many do. So yeah, well, and. Andy is always very humble, I think, about his contributions and as their accomplishments as a whole. So I, I always have to like, I always have to toot the horn and be like, no, you guys have done some really, really cool stuff. And we're all very thankful for what you've created. You're a far superior to- horn tutor than I am. So. <laughs> and as for me, uh, as per usual, you guys can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Light and Shadow Pod. Um, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash light and shadow pod. Um, and I just retooled my tiers a little bit and there's merch included on some of them now. So, uh, now that I'm putting out regular content again, I feel fine, uh, touting my Patreon. So (laughs) if you love the show and if you want to support, please go check it out. Um, next month I'm going to be covering the sacrament and talking a little bit about cults. And my special guest is going to be my Jim mother. Oh. <laughs> um, and so that's going to be a fun episode because um, I'm excited to hear my mom talk about her religious background because she was a preacher's kid and like her religious background is my religious background. I mean, she's the one that raised me in church. Um, so I'm very kind of excited to have her on and uh, and get her perspective on some things. So that's pretty bold. I'm excited to hear yeah. you get told to sit up straight a whole bunch. Nah. <laughs> she's it's she's so cute too she like she takes all her notes but like physically on paper and then she has to like have her little piece of paper that she reads and checks while we record like it's <laughs> she takes it very seriously and she's she's guested on like short spots a couple of times and so nice i'm just i'm i'm glad that i have a mom that's like cool and fun enough to sit down and talk about horror with me absolutely <laughs> Yeah. So until next time, guys, um, you know, you know your homework. Go watch the sacramite. The The sacramites. (laughs) Go watch the sacrament. And until next time, stay spooky. The 21st century thus far has proven what one of my characters says in the movie, which is that as a species, we're fundamentally insane. There's just no way we're going to be able to get along. I guess that's been our history. Certainly. Uh, But it seems to be our future as well, which has, you know, got me a little rattled and a little angry. This movie has echoes of political and religious situations that we find ourselves in now. It raises a lot of uh, interesting topics that have been debated in the press and uh, current events over the last couple of years. And all of those things obviously played a part when Frank got around to writing the screenplay and directing the movie, casting the movie, which is a part of direction. But they're not for me to say, other than to say that he and I share some political convictions as as to what they are. The viewer who comes to the movie 
with an open mind and a clear eye will see that for themselves. I hope that this one counts. I hope it's something that, that you know, kind of rocks people back a little bit and, and that, that they'll remember, you know, the way I remember those entries into the genre that I carry with me. Whatever may come, however audiences feel about it, whether people embrace it and love it and whether they, whether they don't, it's, it really feels like the movie I set out to make. In spite of the incredibly condensed schedule and the, and the low budget and all that stuff, or maybe even because of that, I hope it plants a little flag in their brain the way that the story has planted a flag in my brain and in the brains of those people who've read Steve King's story. I hope the movie does the same thing for moviegoers and that it, that it does kind of stay with them, does kind of haunt them.